Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 167, The Lord's Prayer. And on the podcast this week, that's what we're going to look at, is the Lord's Prayer. We will actually start in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, and make it all the way through verse 14. So, of course, doing a podcast on this topic, while this is a beautiful passage of Scripture, it's also a little bit nerve-wracking because so much has been said about the Lord's Prayer. So many wonderful things, so many not-so-wonderful things. Entire books have been written on the Lord's Prayer. Whole courses in seminary or through NT Write Online is about the Lord's Prayer. And I'm not going to say a fraction of the good things that have often been said about it. But since this is just a podcast and this is just my thoughts, I thought, you know what, let's do it anyway. I don't know everything that could be said. You obviously probably have some insights that I won't have seen either. And then you can share those with me and we can both learn together. But I'm excited to get into the Lord's Prayer. I do think that this is the heart of what Jesus is about. And I think as we think about it, Um, and and connect it closely with other things that Jesus said and did, it can be both encouraging to us and challenging. And so without any more of an intro, let's just get right into it. As we begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Matthew 6 verses 5 through 14. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, the beginning of this passage is similar in sound to the first several verses of Matthew chapter 6. And we saw there that Jesus is contrasting, don't be like the hypocrites, who stand with trumpets and announce what they're doing, but rather do what you do in secret. And there he applied it to giving. Here he is applying this to praying. And as we said a few weeks ago, chapter 5 is filled with a lot of things that followers of Jesus in his kingdom should do, but people often don't. Um, Turning the other cheek and going an extra mile when someone forces you to go one mile or um, you know, recognizing lust in the heart as equivalent to adultery in action and so on. But chapter 6 was filled with a little bit more of the kinds of things that people assume you should do, and yet Jesus is critiquing the motives behind why we do what we do. Again, the, the, the righteousness of the kingdom is a righteousness of the heart, and so whether or not an action is good and right is always dependent upon its motivation. And of course, 
No one knows motivations um, better than God. He knows them even better than we know them ourselves. But what Jesus is talking about here is something as common or as spiritual sounding as prayer. And he's making the contrast between those who pray in order to gain attention from others and those who are praying, not necessarily to gain attention from God, but rather posturing themselves in such a manner that God would be honored by the types of ways they approach him. And so that's really the thrust of the Lord's prayer. Um, Jesus contrasts it with not heaping up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, it's important to realize that when then Jesus gives a contrast, he says, don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So don't you know ramble on endlessly, but rather pray like this. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Now, several of you know that I grew up in a Baptist context, and when my wife and I decided to become Anglican, we got the typical responses that you get from people in a Baptist or a non-denominational context when shifting toward a more liturgical church environment. And one of the main pushbacks we got was, you have all of these memorized not memorized, but you have all of these written and, and pre-scripted prayers and, and other such things. Doesn't that make it, you know, just rote and mindless? And I had one friend in particular question me with the fact that I said, well, in our settings, we have a lot of scripture that we use and we recite the Lord's Prayer every Sunday in our church. And he said, right, but it's just this mindless repetition of the prayer. That's not what Jesus meant by what he was was talking about. Is that just what you do is just mindlessly say it? And I said, well, I hope it's not mindless any more than when you have a song memorized like Amazing Grace and you can sing it by heart. Does that make it rote? Does that make it meaningless to you? Now, I'm not a convinced per se that it's the exact words that Jesus uses or, of course, the, the translation you happen to use when you quote the Lord's Prayer. Um in our setting, we're not connected to the King James Version, but a lot of people happen to know the Lord's Prayer in the King James. And so we actually say it in the King James, not because we think that's better or more special. It just happens to be the one that so many people know. And it ends kind of unique, you know, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, it's this little additional part that we throw in there too, um, based on some of the manuscripts. But the point of what Jesus is saying can be grasped word for word, and it can also be grasped thematically. And I don't get into arguments. I'd rather somebody explain to me what it is that I'm saying and why the words that I'm uttering with my mouth um, actually carry meaning. And I think that's what I'd like to do here. Um, Jesus basically breaks this down into a couple sections. He breaks prayer down simply into two sections um, addressed to God our Father and then a prayer about us. Um, one person uh, used to say that prayer is, you know, really can be boiled down to, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. Help us, help us, help us. Forgive us, forgive us, forgive us. You know, like something like, okay, yeah, that's basically what prayer is boiled down to. In the first several, um, you know, statements, our Father in heaven, it, it's addressing our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those Two verses there are ultimately directed toward God himself, and the remainder of the prayer are requests for us. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and please don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So 
we've broken this down before, but you know, love God, love neighbor, right? Like this is dealing with God and our focus upon him. And then it's dealing with our relationship and, and, uh, connection with, um, with other people in the way that we live. And so really, if I were to break this down in my own words, it would be as follows. The prayer begins, our father in heaven. Now I could do a whole podcast on just this phrase, but I'm not. But what I want to say about it is a couple of things. The first thing is Jesus encourages us to address God as our father. Now, I know that there are some people, and I know some of you who listen to this podcast, do not have great images of a father. You may have had an incredibly difficult experience with your own father, or personally know of friends or family members who've had difficult experiences with their father. And it is hard in our context to always apply how we understand God as father to our own experiences as father. But to the best of your ability recognizing that God is not like us and the way that he cares for us as his children is not a a mirror image of the way some fathers on this earth care about their children. If you see a good glimpse of God in some earthly fathers, then that's a gift. And if you haven't seen a good glimpse of God from an earthly father, then Jesus is introducing us to someone who can correct our own understandings and give us the nurture and the care from a father that we desperately need. And so he addresses God as his father and invites us to do the same. This is something that I think is often overlooked, and that is that Jesus is inviting us to have the same relationship with his father. Um, He's inviting us to have the same relationship with the father that he does. And he starts it, notice, not with my father in heaven, um, but rather life in the kingdom is always about a community. It's always about disciples that are gathered together into a community. In fact, we'll look at the back, the latter half of the Lord's prayer. It has a lot to do with community, right? Our forgiveness from God is connected to our willingness to forgive others. And it's not said once, it's said twice in the Lord's prayer. And so don't look over the very first word here, our father. This is not a my father. This is the request you and I come to our father with our own needs and the needs of those in our communities. And so this is an important way to begin the Lord's prayer. It's not a It's not a private thing. It's very public. It is personal. He's our father. But this is something as basic as you have siblings in a home. And when you are out of sync with one another, the father may step in with some type of of discipline or corrective measure. Even if you think that you are doing, you know, your own thing perfectly fine, the relationship you maintain with your siblings is really important to your father because he cares about all of you. And then Jesus wants to remind us again, our father who is in heaven. Now it's Ecclesiastes. I think it's in chapter five somewhere where, you know, the author is reminding us, God is in heaven. You are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Um, Heaven is not the, the destination point of where people go when they die. Heaven is a present reality. It's a realm where God dwells. And in the beginning, as we looked at in Genesis 1 and 2, heaven and earth 
overlapped. They were in sync with one another. The place where God rules and where God dwells was in perfect harmony and in perfect sync with the place where people lived and where people dwelled. That was the earth. That was the garden. It was this representation of God's rule. He extended to the humans made in his image to be the to be the rulers and image bearers of him in the world. Now, of course, sin enters, right, and and corrupts that, and now the realms of heaven and earth are separate. The realms where God's will, and we'll get to that in a second, where God's will is done in heaven is not the same as what is happening on earth. People's wills are running the show on earth because they've chosen to rebel against him. But Jesus wants to remind us that the Father, who is our Father, all of our fathers, he resides in heaven. His realm is different. Therefore, when Jesus says shocking things about the way you and I are to live on this earth, and you might say, with all of the conflicting wills that are taking place on the earth, it would be stupid to live out a realm where God is in charge, and therefore I live according to his ways. And I hope you wouldn't go so far as to conclude that because Jesus himself lived it out and did it cost him his life? It absolutely did. But was it worth it? Yes, it was. And so Jesus is inviting his disciples to recognize where the father is versus where we are. And then he says, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is a strange word for us. It just means praise be to your name. May your name be made great. Now, this is a really interesting thing. This is us addressing um, God himself as our father. We know where his realm is from. We know where his authority rules. And we are requesting, before we get into any requests of our own, we are requesting that his name be made great. So we say, we know where you are. We know you are our father. We know you care about us. We know you care about us all. That's why we are addressing you as our father. And we want your name to be made great. The very next phrase, verse 10, I think is almost a repeat. It it says, your kingdom come, your will be done. I mean, some people think those are two separate requests. I don't necessarily know I would have a problem with that. I I tend to think it's almost like parallelism. Your kingdom coming is your will being done. That that seems to be the same kind of phrase. But however you interpret that, here's the next phrase. It still has nothing to do with you and me. It has to do with the Father in heaven having his name be made great. And what does Jesus say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now on the earth, there are a lot of wills being done. People have their own agendas. They have their own ideas of what would make the world a better place. And it's mixed with some benevolent acts and it's mixed with some greed and it's mixed with some kindness and it's mixed with some idolatry. And there's a lot of competing wills going on in the earth, but we are recognizing that God dwells in the realm of the heavens and he is the bringer of the true kingdom, not the little kingdoms we set up on the earth, but the bringer of the true kingdom. And we are desiring that his name be made great. And one of the most effective ways for his name to be made great is for his people to be completely open and receptive to him bringing his kingdom and his will to bear on the earth. Jesus, of course, reminds us he knows where this is already happening, and it is happening in the realms of the heavens. 
Jesus is requesting that what once was united, the heavens and the earth, be reunited. That there's an overlapping now of the kingdom of heaven on the earth. This is why it's so fascinating when you look at the Bible in a thematic way. And you recognize that if the first garden was the original temple and it is the place where God dwelled and where he would, uh, in ancient Near Eastern um, understanding, the, 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 the new king who conquered a new land would come in and set up an image of himself in the temple. And of course, that's what Genesis 1 and 2 is doing for us. It's God himself sets up a human being as his image and puts him in the temple to be his representative. But then when the Israelites would build a temple, they were literally making the temple to be a reflection back to Eden. They, they would make the inside of the temple look like a garden. They would have priests and servants, which were actually um, individuals who carried out the commission that God originally gave to Adam and Eve to be um, to to work the ground and to keep it. They were, in fact, the first priests. And so the, the temple was a reminder of this location where heaven and earth once overlapped. In fact, he- temples were built on mountaintops because they were thought to be the closest to the heavens, right? The skies. And it's the place where God could come down and meet with his people. And then, of course, Jesus transitions that imagery for us into saying that where he is, is the temple, and that's where the presence of God dwells. And then Paul picks up this theme and says that where the people of God are filled by his spirit, that's where the temple is. That's where heaven and earth overlap. But the image I'm after right now is this idea that when Jesus comes, everywhere he goes, he's bringing with himself little pockets of heaven. He's entering situations where man's will is running the show. You are a sinner, you therefore don't belong in God's presence, says the Pharisees. That's, that's a, a, a will of, of man. Or you are an unclean person, therefore you're not allowed to be around us who are the clean people. Or if you, you know, pray and, and get respect from other people, then you are going to look better in God's eyes. And Jesus is constantly coming in explaining what the kingdom of heaven would look like if it were present on the earth. And so wherever Jesus goes, the kingdom goes. Wherever Jesus does something, that is the kingdom at work. And so when Jesus encourages his disciples to pray that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's, it's us requesting that God would do that in the world. Now, it's in Matthew 9, but Jesus encourages his disciples to pray that the Lord would send out workers into his harvest. And he, he invites the disciples to pray this. And then in the very next verse, which just happens to be the very next chapter in Matthew's gospel, Jesus sends the disciples out two by two to cast out demons, to raise the dead, to, to heal the, the sick, to cure the lepers. And what Jesus is doing for his disciples and with them is he's asking them, he's inviting them in to pray that the Lord would send out workers into his harvest And then Jesus is positioning his disciples to become the very answer to their own prayer. Not because God doesn't work without us, but no, actually he doesn't. God always does what he does in the world, in and through his people. That's all he always wants to do. And so I don't think it's too much of a leap to suggest that some of the things that Jesus then encourages us to pray as they regard our own living is in part a little bit about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And he shifts into verse 11, which I would say is arguably a shift into what it would look like for you and for me 
to live as faithful citizens of his kingdom. But here's what he says next. Give us this day our daily bread. If we are going to be focused solely on our father receiving praise to his name and his name being made great and our desire for his kingdom to come, his will to be done, not our own, on earth as it is in heaven, then we are going to need God himself to provide for us what it is that we need while we are serving him in his kingdom. And so the first request is that he would give us this day our daily bread. Again, notice the pronouns. It's give us. It's not give me. It's give us this day our daily bread. Now, if you think about bread itself, and this comes up in several places in the Gospels, but if you think about the Lord providing daily bread, your mind might go back to Exodus chapter 16, where the Lord first provides manna for his people in the wilderness. If you remember the story, they um, are redeemed from Egypt. They cross through the Red Sea. And then the people begin to complain because there is no food, there is no water. And they begin to accuse the Lord of dragging them into Egypt in order to kill them in the wilderness. And so God provides this strange, flaky substance that appears on the ground in the morning dew. And then when the dew goes away, there's this like flaky substance on the ground. And it's kind of funny. The story itself, I think, is sort of funny. We, we call it manna, right? But in, in the biblical story, the people look at it and they're like, what is it? And so um, the author of Exodus tells us that the people named it manna because manna means what is it? And I, I've heard another commentary say, it's, it's, you know, what is it is sort of the English implied full phrase, but it's really just like what? That's what the word means. So give us what? You know, give us our daily bread. And, and what I think is so fascinating about that, and, and, it, and it's sometimes hard for us to wrap our minds around this. I mean, I do think in first century Jewish context, there were lots of people who literally didn't know whether or not they were going to have food um, at the end of the day. And oftentimes, even in some of Jesus's parables, he refers to workers in the vineyard working for a denarius. And a, a denarius was roughly a day's wages. Um, and depending upon drought or famine or other such things, I mean, to buy bread and to provide a place for your family to sleep and for you all to eat, like that's literally all you had. And you worked all day in order to make sure that what you had for that day was provided for your family. And so this is a real thing. Um, I, I think as a 21st century middle upper class American, I don't really know what this means in terms of actual food because I have plenty of food. Um, I go to the grocery every two weeks. I buy food for two weeks. I stock my pantry. I have two refrigerators and two freezers and I fill them full. I mean, I have three teenagers at home, so that makes sense. But the point is, my question isn't, am I going to eat tonight? My question is often, what am I going to eat tonight? And my kids experience that same reality and they don't know any different. So for Jesus to say, give us this day our daily bread, I think we can take to mean several things. Um, the first is, that's my reality, but are there not people in the community of which I'm a part or in the city in which I live who may be in some of the struggles of, are we going to have enough food? Where are our needs going to come from? And so I think it's important for us to realize that this once again is give us. So we're praying for the kingdom. And in the kingdom, the concerns of those who have a lot 
should be centered on the concerns of those who don't have very much. That's what life in the kingdom is like. That's what God's um, kingdom coming to earth means. That's what his will being done on earth is all about. And so I think that would be a, a relevant application to this passage. But I also think if we tie it with Exodus 16, it's kind of funny if it was give us this day our daily bread, then one of the things that I think it does mean is that when the Israelites looked at the flakes on the ground that they later called manna, they called it, what is it? Which, if you stop and think about it, means, I think, at the very least, it means that the Lord has provided something for the people that to that point in their lives, they've never seen or experienced. And I think that can be taken in a lot of different ways as we try to apply the Lord's Prayer. And that is, life in the kingdom is a life of deep trust. Here we are asking for God's name to be hallowed, God's name to be made great, his kingdom to come, his will to be done. And then we posture ourselves as actual children who request from him what it is that we're going to need each day in order to live faithfully as his children in his kingdom. And a lot of times we stress over stuff like this. We stress over where the money is going to come from to do what he think, we think he's asking us to do. Or we stress about what life is going to be like if this divorce that I'm facing is coming my way. Or we worry about what's going to happen to our kids if the environment we are in is creating you know, toxic um, uh, um, lifestyle for them. We, we worry about what the future is going to look like for the church in this country when so many scandals are coming to the surface and people are losing faith and losing hope in the church. Like line up, right? Get a pen out and a piece of paper and start writing down all the things that we tend to stress over that we don't know how God is going to step in and do something. And you know why we don't know that? Because we tend to imagine that God is going to meet the needs we have with the resources we are currently aware of. And I think one of the neatest things about the story of the manna is that God is providing for every one of his people through a means that none of them have ever seen before. In fact, when the provision comes, they're so dumbfounded by it, they literally call it, what is it? Like, what the heck? Where did this come from? Who... And this is what I think is so fascinating about life in the kingdom. God is not looking for people who are just, you know, filled with money, filled with gifts, filled with talents, filled with resources, who are ready to dispense them onto the world. He's asking for a people who believes that he's good enough to provide even what they've never conceived of in order to care for his kids. That's what he's asking for. Do you believe that the name of God Hallowed be your name. Do you believe that the name of God driving his own kingdom, bringing about his own will is so good that we can trust him to answer the challenges we face in ways that we have never been able to calculate before? That's a life of deep trust. And it's trust like a small child to a father who says, I don't know how you do this. I don't understand this. But I believe your love for me and your care for me is enough to bring about the hope that I absolutely need. And so I'm going to trust you. I'm going to ask you to do what only you can do. And in so doing, 
we will be making his name great. Because you don't just trust any God that well. You trust a God like that, that you believe is truly good. And one of the reasons we love him this much and trust him this much is because of what Jesus says in verse 12. Although he connects it to um, the debts that we forgive of other people. And so Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice again, the pronouns, our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I know some translations, the King James, for instance, the one we quote on Sundays, talks about trespasses. And trespasses generally lets us think in terms of sins. And so many people, in in my context anyway, sins is generally the first thing that we think about. So forgive me my sins as I also have forgiven other people their sins. And I think that's fair. But the translation that's used here is actually from a Greek word that in different contexts can mean both debts, like actual debts, um, financial debts, and um, offenses that somebody has committed against another person. And there are different Greek words, one that's used almost exclusively of just financial debts and one that's used almost exclusively of of sins or, or um, brokenness between people. But this word has actually uh, multiple uses and it can, be, it can be used to mean actual debts and it can be used to mean um, sins or, or trespasses, transgressions, some, something of that sort. And so I think it's important to realize that in the Old Testament, the year of Jubilee was one huge celebration every 50 years where actual debts were canceled and people were freed and released from those debts. And I think when Jesus is speaking about forgiveness in a parable in Matthew 18, he very explicitly uses monetary terms because this is the real world in which we live and the weight that a person carries while owing money to someone else and the interest that collects and the the, the baggage and just the well, the weight, that's the best word I know how to use that, that people carry. Um, it can roll over to physical things. It can roll over to spiritual things. It can roll over to emotional things. People feel indebted is a word we will use. You know, I'm indebted to you forever because of what you've done to me. And sometimes people carry around this sort of weight. But Jesus does something unique here. He, he connects forgive us our debts. So it's, it's a plea recognizing that we have debts, right? That there are things that we could never repay as we also have forgiven our debtors. And he connects the two. And we'll get to that again in verse 14. But Jesus connects them. Our being forgiven of debts from our father to the relationship of the, and, and the way we tend to extend the same kind of forgiveness of those who owe us something. And so again, in some contexts, this could apply to monetary things. In some contexts, this could apply to transgressions, sins, trespasses, what have you. And so Jesus, again, is saying part of the way you bring the Lord's will to earth is by being the same kind of giver as you have been a receiver. They're always connected. Your ability to to give deeply is almost always connected to how much you believe you've received and, and he's, he's explaining that same thing to his disciples here. His last little phrase for the Lord's Prayer itself is in verse 13. And he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
Now, some translations will say deliver us from evil, and that's actually not a good translation because that just gives some nebulous, vague thing. Well, there's evil in the world, and why is there evil there? That may be true, but in the Greek, there is a definite article, which we translate the, and so it is the evil one. And so the, the, the most accurate translation for this passage is referencing the, the devil himself, number one, or again, any of his minions, right? Demons, principalities, powers, his working in the world explicitly. And this is our request as our shepherd for God himself not to lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So, um, you know, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I, I would be the first to raise my hand and make sure everyone knows I don't feel myself qualified to have endured such a nightmare of 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and being tested. I don't want to endure something similar to that. And if, if at all cost, I would love for, um, the, the God who leads my life and directs my life to prevent me from having to face something that horrific. So we are asking him, lead us not into temptation. We don't want to be people who get you know suckered into temptation and fall and trip up because that's not going to make your name look good. Deliver us from the evil one. We won't be able to deliver ourselves if you don't step in and keep us from this. And so even David, as he's praying, you know, Psalm 23 even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you were there, right there with me. Um, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So he is trusting in God to deliver him from the evil one. And so this is the logic. We are praying, our Father, we know you're in heaven. Praise be to your name. May your name be made great. We want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done here as it is where you dwell we need you to provide for us what we need every single day, even the things that we may have never conceived of that you're going to offer to us at the right time and in the right way so that we can thrive as your children in the kingdom. By the way, the way your kingdom works, forgiveness runs rampant in your kingdom. And so please forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses as we also have forgiven those who have trespassed against us or who have debts to us or who have sinned against us. And please, whatever you do, however hard this is. Please don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the attacks of the evil one, from the enemy, from the, our own bodies. As John says, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So like sometimes the evil one is wreaking havoc in our own lives and the temptation that our own flesh rises up against us in defiance of life in the kingdom. We are pleading with God not to let us um, give in to that temptation, but rather that he would be the deliverer for us and of us. And so then Jesus continues and he picks up this theme about this mutual forgiveness. And he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, I don't know if this is true. Okay, so I'm going to preface what I'm about to say with, I don't know if this is true. But when I read verse 12 that says, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and then I read Jesus again, say, if you forgive others their trespasses, in verse 14, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. It seems weird that right in the middle of two conversations about forgiveness, Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
Now, again, I said, I'm not sure if this is exactly accurate or if this is exactly what Jesus is thinking about, but I don't think it's too far off. But Jesus is talking, I think, about forgiveness. And one of the ways that being led into temptation and one of the ways that the evil one seeks to destroy us is with respect to the way we relate with each other. This is life in the kingdom. Life in the kingdom is knocking down dividing walls of hostility that have kept Jews and Gentiles apart from one another for generations. The life in the kingdom is about breaking down racial disparities and showing that if we are truly justified by our, the faithfulness of Jesus and that is how we are accepted in the kingdom, then it is not about our skin color. It is not about our, our finances. It is not about our gifts. It is not about our education. It is not about how attractive we are. It's not a matter of where we live or where we don't live. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with God being gracious to us. But even Paul himself in 2 Corinthians, the end of chapter 2, he says, If I have forgiven anything, um, I'm sorry, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, not being ignorant of Satan's designs in Paul's context, means not being outwitted by the fact that if you withhold forgiveness from another person, Satan has the upper hand. When Paul talks about do not give the devil an opportunity in Ephesians chapter 4, do not give the devil a foothold, do not give the devil a place or an opportunity to take up residence and feel at home in your soul, he ends his explanation of what that would look like in the lives of faithful followers by forgiving one another just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Get rid of bitterness, get rid of anger, get rid of slander, etc., now, I'm not exactly sure the number of the episode. I forgot to look this up. But if you go back into somewhere in the 20s, I believe it is, in the podcast, one of those episodes, I had inserted a sermon um, on forgiveness that I had preached at my church several years ago now, I guess, since that was probably in 2018 or 2019. But it was a sermon on forgiveness where I talked about this. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because I think it's really, really helpful. But one of the most powerful ways that the enemy gets in is with this idea of forgiveness. And he convinces us, well, it wouldn't do any good to forgive them. They'll just hurt me again. Or they don't deserve it. Or I can't forgive them. I could never forget what they've done to me. And I've heard so much teaching on this. And I sadly have heard people that I... 95% of the time agree with and respect and are fairly popular when it comes to teaching, even as it comes to teaching about survivors of abuse and this idea of forgiveness. And I have heard pastors who are so compassionate and so kind towards survivors teach with absolute surety about all of the times in a person's life where they shouldn't forgive. And he's re referencing it as it relates to abusers. You should not forgive abusers and people telling you that you should. And I think I know what he means. I think what he means is some of the bad teaching that has come across in the church, where if someone has 
hurt someone else, we tend in the churches oftentimes siding with abusers because sometimes they are our charismatic, dynamic pastors and teachers, and we don't have categories to imagine them in any bad light at all. But what I think is fundamentally misguided when a teacher or a pastor tells survivors not to forgive is that you have no context to understand what Jesus is saying here. And I don't want to make that mistake. Um, for, forgiveness, and, and we need to be clear about what Jesus is saying, all right? Forgiveness just means relinquishing your right to get back at your offender, okay? Um, it, it, it is a releasing of all judgment to God alone. So somebody offends you, right? Somebody sins against you. Somebody mistreats you. In our world, and Jesus has already addressed this, in our world, we want to take eye for an eye, right? We want to take tooth for tooth. We want the opportunity to be the judge who gets to determine what the punishment is going to look like for that person. So there are some people who do very active payback, and there are some people who do very passive payback, right? Um, Giving someone the silent treatment is a very passive way of getting them back, of punishing someone because they hurt your feelings. Um, I know this from experience. I have acted out for many years of my life a passive punishment of silent treatment or ignoring or whatever. Some people just verbally assault you if you offend them in some way. So what forgiveness is, is an act of trust on your part that God is more qualified to dispense judgment on your offender than you are. You are choosing to believe that he is good, that he cares for his children, that he cares for you, but he also cares for the person who's offended you, and that he sees the whole picture better than you. So to forgive says nothing about that person. It says nothing about whether you forget. Okay, and again, I want you to go back and listen to my sermon. I don't want to re-preach it um, on this episode because I don't think that's necessary. But to go back, because I walk through several objections that real people give and they should give. I can never forget. They're just going to do it again. They don't deserve it and on and on and on. But I want to be clear. Forgiveness is simply a choice you make that you are going to give up your right to be the one to determine how your offender gets punished. So even when somebody does a real crime against you and and the police get involved, for example, your choice to forgive them has nothing to do with whether or not you like them, whether you think they didn't have ill intent, whether you think they might do it again. Your choice to forgive is to say to God, I trust you to bring real justice to bear on this situation. I am not going to carry that load and that responsibility to dispense judgment on my own. Now, sometimes that's a freedom, right? That's a huge weight off. But other times we like to hold on to the right to be the one responsible for dispensing judgment. It feels good. It feels like here's something I can do now where I can punish this person. And some people feed on bitterness, they feed on anger, they feed on resentment, and they don't realize that what that is, is eating them from the inside. It's the enemy at work in their lives. And they are trying to live life in the kingdom, but the enemy has a foothold because they will not give up that right 
to the one who will actually do something about it. And I understand how hard this is. There is nothing in life that requires more trust in the goodness of God than something like this. Do I really trust that he's going to do right by this situation? Or do I trust myself to do right by this situation? This, I think, gives us a a snapshot into what Jesus is trying to, to get at in verses 14 and 15, okay? It's a really weird section. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, you first of all read this and you're like, I thought... I thought the father forgives me is not based on anything I do. And yet this tells me exactly that this is based on something I do. So do we have the gospel wrong or is Jesus, you know, is this part of the original? Does somebody make this up? I mean, I remember tripping over this, stumbling through this. I don't understand what's happening. I, I think it's actually a little bit easier than we sometimes make it out to be, right? So let me use one of the examples that I that I did preach in this sermon. And I think it's common um, about why people don't forgive. They, they want to see a change in behavior before they forgive, right? And if they don't see that, then they don't forgive. And here's one of the things that I think um, is common, right? They don't deserve it. That person really hurt me. They are a jerk. I'm one of a long line of people that they've hurt. There's no way I'm going to forgive them, right? Because they don't deserve it. Okay, guess what? You're right. They don't. That is absolutely true. And that's precisely the point. Now, I want you to hear me. The word forgiveness in Greek is charizomai. Okay, I've already shared with you what it means. It means it's you relinquish your right to get back at your offender. You were offended. So you releasing that right to God is you giving up something, right? It's you granting something to another person um, that, that they don't deserve. So think about this. The, the word in Greek has the word charis at its root, charizomai. So charis simply means grace. So think about it. At its core, forgiveness means extending grace to someone else. And you cannot extend grace to someone if they deserve it. So follow my logic here. I think this helps us explain what Jesus is talking about. Our Heavenly Father's forgiveness of our trespasses is dependent upon us realizing that He is extending grace to us, that we in no way deserve to be forgiven. But if we dispense forgiveness solely on whether or not someone deserves it, then we are declaring that we believe forgiveness should only be granted to those who deserve it. And if we believe that as it relates to other people, chances are we believe that as it relates to God. So here's what Jesus is saying. If you only give forgiveness to people who you believe deserve it, then your father in heaven is only going to give forgiveness based upon those who deserve it. And since your father in heaven doesn't give forgiveness that way, don't expect to receive it. That's what it means. Now, this is where I want to insert what I think it will be good news to several of you. 
And this is where I think that these pastors that I have listened to, again, that I respect so much of what they say, I think they miss the mark because they do not make a very, very, very important distinction. And that is forgiveness is not the same as trust. I think if more people could understand this concept, it would clear up a lot of spiritual weight. Forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. If you hurt me, I mean, you offend me, you, you mess with my life in some way, and you come to me repentant, genuinely sorry for what you have done, you apologize, you own what you have done that, that has hurt me, you affirm the fact that it hurt me and that you could, they can understand why all of this and they ask for my forgiveness, what I am offering them is a choice, an act of trust and faith in God that he gets to be the one to determine how justice ought to play itself out in this situation, not me. I'm giving up my right to be the one to determine judgment for that person. I'm not going to bring it up again to them. I'm not going to hold it over their head. I'm not that judge. If the Holy Spirit wants to convict them at some future point, that's his job. I've given it to him. I've given that right to him. However, in my relationship with that person, I'm not just going to welcome them back into the same level of trust that we once had before they really hurt me. I'm going to be a little cautious. I'm going to test the waters. I might introduce some new boundaries to prevent that same kind of thing from happening again. That is biblical wisdom. That is simply common sense, but that is not me choosing not to forgive. Jesus says nothing about trusting other people. Actually, he says something about trusting other people one time, and it's at the end of John chapter two, where he explicitly says that he doesn't trust other people because he knows what's in them, right? Trust is something that takes a long time to restore. It is not the point at which you choose to forgive. And I've seen people do this. I'm never gonna forgive you until I can trust you again. Don't make that error. That, that is crippling you because you're carrying around unforgiveness and potentially bitterness and the grounds for the enemy to do some of his best work. So much of life in the kingdom, so much of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven is this reconciliation of what were once broken relationships into a unified whole. Do not misunderstand. That is the one place that the enemy will seek to do his worst work, and that is in ripping apart human relationships. And I think he's done a bang-up job of doing it, and I think he continues to do it by confusing people with this idea of forgiveness and trust. I shared a story on the episode where I put that sermon on of a good friend of mine who went through some horrific betrayal, just terrible things. And was trying to get to the place where she could forgive this person who had offended her incredibly deeply. And she was praying about it and she was asking for God's help. Um, again, give us this daily, daily bread, right? Give me something that I need to be able to follow you faithfully today because without you, I'm lost. And she said that she got a little image. And it was this humongous concrete box that had a big lid on it. And she was pushing it. Um, it. It was filled with 
months and years worth of these hurts that she had just basically collected. And she was pushing this big box around because it was all the hurt that she had experienced. And she saw kind of an image of Jesus inviting her to bring it to the cross and to leave it with him. Here's all this hurt. Here's all this stuff. Like, is it up to her to dispense judgment? When is it going to happen? What's going to take place here? And she said that she saw Jesus motion for her to give it to him. And part of the image that she received was that he was telling her, you need to put the lid on it. And when you give it to me, you're giving it to me. You can't take some of it back. You're not going to give it to me today. And then next week when you're feeling sorry for yourself or whatever, you're not going to take this back. It's mine now. If you give it to me, I'll take it and I'll carry this load and you won't have to carry it anymore. And she said she stopped for a minute because she realized what that meant. Forgiveness is a gift. It's a freedom. But what it also is, is a relinquishing. It's a relinquishing of the right that I have to hold something over somebody else's head. And the moment you realize that that's what forgiveness is, it frees you to be a person who can forgive others, which is exactly what Jesus is teaching. And I think life in the kingdom is built entirely around this. And my friend shared with me that when she decided, okay, I'm going to give it to you and I'm not going to ask for it back. I'm not going to reach for it again. I'm literally giving it to you in full trust that you will do what's right. And she said in that moment, there was a massive weight that was lifted from her. And she said she literally felt 10 pounds lighter. The trust hadn't yet been restored to the per- from the person who had betrayed her, but that didn't matter. This is also how people are able to forgive someone who's dead. You understand, right, that there are some people who have such a mixed up view of what forgiveness means that they're unable to forgive somebody who hurt them, who has since died. How do you learn to you know, trust someone if they're no longer around, have never given you an opportunity to trust them? That's why forgiveness doesn't have anything to do with trust. Trust takes time. Forgiveness is in a moment. Forgiveness is about your relationship with God and your willingness to trust that he will do what is right by that person, not you. Trust has to do with a relationship where you come to learn over time that this person can be counted on not to hurt you in a way that you don't want to be hurt. That doesn't happen overnight. But my friend had shared that once forgiveness was in place and once Jesus took this big concrete box full of all the offenses, she was able to then turn toward the relationship and work on setting boundaries work on having new conversations, work on total honesty, work through counseling, work through several of these other um, um, absolutely central features to restoring a relationship. But in the middle of that restoring of the relationship was not this constant, well, I'm just going to get you back for this. That's what will tear down relationships. And that's what would have destroyed their relationship had it not been for Jesus not, not removing it, right? He's like, don't Jesus take this pain away. I can't. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He asks us to give to him. We're image bearers. We have free will and choice to give to him out of trust exactly what we need to do. And that's how I think Jesus wants us to make sense of this prayer. 
And so I know that was a lot. hope that this episode wasn't too long. Thank you so much for continuing to tune in. Thank you for my supporters. Thank you for those who've left a rating or a review. If you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast, you can follow a link at the bottom of the show notes, 99 cents, 4.99, 9.99 a month, or just make a one-time gift. It helps me to be able to continue to provide resources and um, do interviews and, and have ways for us to continue to connect. So I really appreciate all of you. Love to hear any feedback you have from this episode, any neat insights you've received along the way about the Lord's Prayer. And I hope that this podcast episode was an encouragement to you. Talk to you next time. Have a great week.